0: On today's Teaching in Higher Ed, episode number 103, I get to talk to Sean Michael Morris again, this time about critical instructional design. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stehoviak and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Our family recently went away for a little bit of a retreat, and one of the things that we were asked to do there was to fill out what's called a wheel of life. I don't know if you've seen these before, but they just ask you to sort of rate different aspects of your life. I've seen various variations of them, including your friendships, family, your health, your professional development, your career, and and so on. And for this particular time when I did it, I felt like I was off the charts in terms of professional development. And I think that's probably predominantly due to two reasons. One is just feeling like on Twitter how powerful those connections can be that I have made and how much every time I go and spend time on there, I'm just fed with such a hunger for learning that gets completely satiated by satiated by that process. And then also the fact that there are just so many great resources for the things I'm interested in, including that I have signed up for a class that is coming up offered by the Digital Pedagogy Lab, and we'll be talking about that a little bit in this episode. And that That particular class that I'm signed up is going to be taught by Sean Michael Morris, who is today's guest. He was on the show previously, and today we get to have a conversation about critical instructional design. Let me share just briefly about Sean Michael Morris in case you didn't get a chance to listen to the past episode. He is at Middlebury College, an instructional designer there in their department of digital learning and also the director of the Digital Pedagogy Lab and the director of Hybrid Pedagogy. And I am excited to be able to talk to him because he has been such a teacher for me just in informal ways, and then also that we'll have this connection in more of a formal capacity as well. And just a quick note of accolades about Sean Michael Morris is that Jesse Stommel recently said that he considers Sean to be the greatest online educator that he has ever had a chance to be taught by and to work with, and I'm just so excited about him joining me for today's episode. Sean, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me back. I had such a nice time talking to you the first time, and I wanted to share with everyone why you're back, and that is that when you were on the episode the last time I mentioned to you that you really have been a teacher to me, And I jokingly said, but I've never paid you to do that job. And actually, I am now, it's official, the credit card transaction has gone through. I now can say that I am or will be paying you to be my teacher from June 13th to July 1st. And that is for a course that you'll be teaching with Amy Collier called Critical Instructional Design. And I'd like you to talk just a little mm-hmm. bit about the class, and because I think that people who are listening might, like me, also be interested in something like this for their own professional development.
1: Sure. Sure. No problem. First of all, thank you very much for for enrolling. I'm actually really excited about this course. I've been doing instructional design. Uh, I may have mentioned this on the last time, last time we talked, but I've been doing instructional design to various degrees for about 15, 16 years. And one thing that sort of always bothered me about instructional design is is the way that it makes very mechanical the non-mechanical nature of teaching because it's virtual, because it's asynchronous, largely certain processes are put into place where the spontaneity is taken out of teaching. The the relationship is taken out of teaching, the, the sort of uh, care and nurture of the student is taken out of teaching, and all of a sudden it becomes mostly about what content can be transferred and what and then and then assessments essentially. So you're giving content and then you're checking to make sure the content was accurately read, apparently, and absorbed, to an almost absurd extent where, or really in some cases, an absurd extent, where teachers are actually leaving behind when they when they become instructors, well when they go online, they leave behind the thing that makes them valuable teachers in class. They leave behind their their dynamic speech and their gestures and their walking back and forth in class or their creative things they do with the arrangement of desks or stuff like that that, that that teachers like to do when they're in the room. And all of that just gets stripped away. And then all of a sudden they're reduced to essentially PowerPoint presentations that the students have to sit there and, and go through, memorize, and then regurgitate in the form of a, an exam of some sort. And critical instructional design is sort of it kind of comes out of the conversation that I've had about instructional design for the last 15, 16 years about trying to make what happens in the classroom, not 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 replicating what happens in the classroom online, but rather taking the sort of wonderful dynamic that occurs in a classroom, and trying to find a way for for a wonderful dynamic to occur online, not the same dynamic can't be can't that can't be done. But some similar kind of dynamic, something where a teacher can approach and say, I'm teaching. I'm not just loading up content and letting that be that, that substitute for the teacher. I'm actually in a situation where I get to teach. Right now, I don't know that there are, I mean, there are tools available to teachers that help with that, but, but in many cases, we're faced with teaching inside of an, L, an LMS, a so learning management system. And teachers sometimes feel very helpless against learning management system, how can I, how can I do it differently? Basically it's designed so that all I'm doing is loading content and then assessing it and then, and then posting grades. But a critical instructional design is a way of starting to question the LMS, trying to figure out ways to hack it, if you will, not really in the code, but just in terms of the way it behaves and, and the way it expects us to behave. The pedagogy that's encoded in the LMS itself trying to break into that switch it up uh, and make it work for us so a lot of critical construction design at this point is is questioning it's a matter of stepping back and observing and saying what are the assumptions of the lms what are the assumptions about that i that i make and have been given to make about online learning and and how can i how can i switch that up make it make it into something that feels more productive more like teaching that i want to do if that makes sense
0: I've been doing the pre-reading that you assigned. I'm a very good student, you're going to find. <laughs> <laughs> Just you wait. And one of the articles, when we talked about doing this episode, I had thought in my mind that I think you maybe have pre-reading of four or five articles, something like that. And, and one of them includes a talk given by Gardner Campbell. And... Mm-hmm. I thought, gosh, well, we could talk about those things and that would be that would make for a great episode. And I couldn't get farther than an article which I will post a link to in the show notes at teachinginhighered com slash one oh two that you wrote called Critical Pedagogy in the Art of Learning Management. And that's really where our conversation will center on today. Although I'm sure knowing you and knowing me, we will find other <laughs> things to bring into it as well. But you start out really with this whole notion of absurdity. And you talk about that there are other things that are delightful when they come into our teaching and into our instructional design. Things like, you didn't say the word diversions, but that's what I think of, or maybe that was the word you used. But I mean, there's great things that can be emerging that are wonderful. Humor can be wonderful, but that absurdity we don't want to have any of that in our teaching. And I do want to make a cautionary note that I'm not quoting you exactly because you do have a very colorful four letter word that you use here that begins with an F and rhymes with the word duck. And I told you before we started recording that I am not trying to censor you. I'm just inherently selfish. And I want to be able to listen to podcasts in my car with my two-year-old and my four-year-old. And I do like to listen to the episodes after they air. And so we're not going to say that word, but it starts with this absurdity that creates a whole list of things. And I want to kind of walk through this list with you and have you share a little bit about and it really is absurd as i was reading i thought you hit it on you hit the nail on the head tell me about the absurdity that consists of learning as powerpoint slides
1: i'm sure that you have you have at some point sat down with either a child or a student or another adult and and had a had a good conversation that went in directions that you had no idea it was going to go in and maybe this this happens all the time in the house that I'm in. I, I, I currently live with two undergraduates. Um, one of them is my husband and one of is my child. And they're always bringing home amazing stuff from school, right? Interesting stuff about philosophy, interesting stuff about social justice and all. I mean, like the sorts of conversations we have around our dinner table are amazing. And you never know exactly where they're going to go because they're fed completely by the group of people that are around the table. In a learning management system, or in many cases, online learning, the, the, the idea that the content can be contained in this, in this very simple, essentially slideshow. So in, inside of a lot of LMSs, you have a situation where, and this is very interesting because I actually design in an LMS and I do this intentionally, but in many LMSs, you have a situation where essentially you're, you read some content and then there's a little next button and you press the next button and you go to the next bit of content and you press the next button, you go to the next bit of content and you just read through this. And, and so it's not unlike, literally unlike a PowerPoint presentation where you're just clicking next, clicking next, clicking next, and going through. In most cases in an LMS, there's no narration. And usually with a, with, a, with a PowerPoint slide situation, right? someone's there and they're talking through the PowerPoints and that sort of thing. The idea that this sort of content can be that linear, the idea that you could go from point a to point b to point c to point d without any divergence without any change without any sort of any kind of contribution from a student any kind of shift in the dynamic or shift in the conversation um, feels like it feels absurd to me and it feels like it's not learning when i sit around with with people at a dinner table and we're talking about philosophy or we're talking about social issues or we're talking about whatever it may be or literature You never know where the conversation is going to go. And the never knowing where the conversation is going to go not only makes it really interesting, but also makes it really edifying, makes makes it a learning experience. The container of the content of this point A to point B to point C and so on keeps anything dynamic from happening. It actually silences learning. And you can hear that silence. Then when you get to the point of the discussion forum, where students are supposed to let you know what they thought of the reading, or they're supposed to somehow reiterate what was said in the reading, really what you get is 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 the internet equivalent of crickets. You get text that, that is, that's boring to read, that isn't interesting, that doesn't contribute anything, doesn't add anything, but really is just a reiteration. That's all that it is. And you can double check that against the content, and then you can assess it and say, yes, they're getting it. But you're not allowing for actual learning to occur all you're doing is you're taking information and dumping it into someone's into someone's brain and then they're dumping it back out onto the page and that's a lot of dumping and very little learning
0: (laughs) I'm I'm thinking about the guy who produces our podcast whose name is Andrew, and I'm thinking about the fact that he picks out quotes from every episode that then we can use on social media. And Andrew, this is my vote for uh, something that has to do with dumping, because as my husband mentioned recently, I do have a pretty big potty humor, which is great when you have a two and a four-year-old, so it's perfect. (laughs) Tell me about discussion that consists of rhetorical questions.
1: So, This is actually something that happens in our live classroom, um, as much as it happens online, and that is the asking a question when you already know the answer. Teachers are, are really guilty of this, I'm guilty of this, it certainly has happened in my courses. And I think it comes out of this idea that teachers feel like students have to reach a certain kind of knowledge or they have to reach a certain objective and this is really really reinforced right now in in, in online learning and in on ground learning this idea that a course has objectives so you get to this point and this is and that shows that you have achieved something and now you can leave the class with an a so we ask these questions because we're trying to guide them to he, to to know what we know but when i ask a question of you for example i'm not asking you to find out what I know, I would just tell you what I know, <laughs> and, then, and then you could contribute back what you know, and then we could have this conversation back and forth. For some reason, that stops happening in the classroom, and it certainly stops happening online. The whole idea of a discussion forum, when, when you set one up in, a, in an LMS, the, the discussion forum becomes a place where it's exactly rhetorical questions. It's, it's essentially, you've done the reading, now tell me what the reading said. And that's really all there is to it. Not only does it not honor the the student's ability to contribute intellectually or creatively to the conversation, but it also doesn't honor the teacher in any way, shape or form. And I think that's part of what I find the most troubling about instructional design and a lot of non-critical, if you will, pedagogy is that for some reason, teachers think it serves them to be non-critical or to follow the rules, quote unquote, of an LMS or of online learning. For some reason, they believe it serves them. And in fact, it doesn't. It's actually hurting them. That's not what we were taught to do as teachers. That's not what we were taught to do as learners. We were not taught to just say, here's the content, memorize the content. And then, you know what? I'm going to grade the content that I wrote. (laughs) Basically, you're going to write back this content, and I'm going to grade to make sure you're saying the same thing that I said. Who wants to do that? That's that's the most boring thing you could possibly imagine. Um, And so you have situations where you have teachers who I'm kind of going off topic here, but 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 you have teachers who don't want to be in class who students who don't want to be in class because this is what's happening. There's just this process of of reinforcing the boring thing um, and and just getting through it to get to the objective. And I think this is made much, much worse in online learning, where where the relationship is invisible, where you can't see the student. You never meet the student in many cases. You have to design the course before any students are even loaded into the course. So you have no idea who is going to show up or what the dynamic is going to be. You're just creating something that students can regurgitate and tell you back. I feel like that does everyone a disservice, including the teacher not just about taking care of students. In fact, it's also about taking care of teachers in that situation. So rhetorical questions actually do nobody any good. They don't do the teacher any good, they don't do the student any good, and they don't lead to any kind of learning in my mind.
0: One of the early episodes of teaching in higher ed, which I'll link to in the show notes, was about something that is called the eight-second rule. And this is the idea that I, and this would be traditionally in a classroom environment, I ask a question, and I count one 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000, and so on all the way to eight seconds, which is an incredibly long time if you've ever tried it. And that, that is the amount of time that you wait for an answer to emerge because people have to be thinking about what their answer is processing. And the better the question that you asked, the more likely it is that they're really needing to think deeply about things. And then they have to do that assessment of risk. Is the answer that I am about to give going to be one that is edified or is it going to be one that is made fun of in some way? And I think that one of the things people have mentioned that as a particularly helpful episode, the ones who have gone back to the old the old school podcast, the early episodes have said, you know, that was really helpful to me because we start to condition ourselves out of asking questions that we actually want an answer. It's this process that, it, that without interference can really hinder because the first time you do it in a classroom it's probably going to take you all the way to those eight seconds because they're going to go wait wait a second when other people ask me questions in this particular environment they go and answer them for me and it's not socially acceptable to go and actually answer the question that's been asked and, and they end up I think driving themselves back more toward your rhetorical questions and also of course how we learned is is easy then to try to think that that's the way that it's supposed to be and it can be really hard to enter into places that we are on unfamiliar terrain and especially like as you said so many people struggling with the technology piece of it teaching in an online environment is just going to make it that that much harder to do
1: I was I was also taught the 8 second rule although I was taught the 10 second rule. So that's
0: oh, no.
1: I, <laughs> I was even less fortunate. And it is hard to do in class. And it's, it's crazily important to do in class because when you reach that eight seconds or you, that 10 seconds, almost always by the time you reach that someone will have said something. And if they didn't, if there is total silence after that long, then, then you can think, okay, I didn't ask the question, right? How can I ask the question another way? and try to get that answer coming again. It's a great observation that one of the reasons we use rhetorical questions is because they're risk-free. Essentially, you're just saying back what the teacher told you. And so if you get that right, then you get that right. And there's a right and there's a wrong um, in that situation. When you're asking an open-ended question, there is no right or wrong. There's your observation. And you you have to, as a student, you have to bring your person and your own personal Observation to and 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 possibly your own sort of creative expression to that moment of of answering a question. And what I would what I would wonder when you know, in turning back to the idea of of instructional design or online learning, is how do we create that eight second rule online? How do we ask those open ended questions and then wait for the responses to see what kinds of things come? That'd be, I mean, that's a, that's the sort of question that I want to be able to ask in the course, um, is how do we do this?
0: One of the things that I've heard people talk a lot about is this careful balancing act between being responsive in discussion boards, or perhaps in a Twitter chat or something like that, and then also allowing for other voices to emerge, and then if we're too responsive thinking, oh, nobody's answering, I don't want them to feel like they... that. No one is there to support them in their learning. But at the same time, we have to kind of give that, that uncomfortable silence, I think, for other voices to emerge. Tell me about a memory of that you have. And in fact, you, you mentioned this, that one of the challenges is that education creates this or the absurdity in education creates the sense of learners who don't want to be in class, teachers who don't want to be in class, and administrators who don't know what happens in class. And I love when you share your memories of teaching. So would you talk about a time when that wasn't true, when learners really wanted to be there, teachers really or you wanted to be there and perhaps even an administrator or two knew what was happening in that class.
1: <laughs> so I don't know that I can speak to the last one. Um,
0: <laughs> Darn it! <laughs> Two for three, I'll take it.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, <clears throat> I was really fortunate when I taught on ground, and and that because I taught creative writing, and so for most people, I was either something that they wanted to be doing with a major, or it was something that they were taking as an elective. And either way, it was one of the funnest ones you could take. And so I was really fortunate in that I often had students who wanted to be in class. Now, I also approached creative writing from a perspective, from a critical perspective. What did it mean to be a writer, not what it mean to write a book or what it mean to write a story, but what does it mean to be a writer? That's kind of the, the direction that I took. And so my classes were very much about uh, where students were coming from, what what they brought to the table. It was a lot less what I was bringing to the table. I could talk about characters and setting and plot and all those sorts of things to the end of the day. But I wasn't actually interested in hearing me say those things. I wanted to hear them say those things. And I wanted them to figure out what they meant for themselves. There were plenty of days when I felt like students were were as engaged as I was in the learning. In that situation, the administrators didn't know what was going on in class. I actually, uh, this was as a grad student at the University of Colorado Boulder, I would turn in a different syllabus to the English office than I would actually use in class (laughs) because because I knew that what I wanted to teach is not what they would tell me to teach. And so I would just, and I knew they weren't going to come see me in class. So I just turned in what they wanted to see and then taught what I wanted to teach. And I didn't go on to have a long career in higher education. And maybe that's one of the reasons (laughs) why, but but actually there was a time when, I mean, for a while I was the chair of an English program, an, an entirely online English program in Colorado. And so in that situation, I was I was the administrator. And I, because it was online, I could visit any of my teachers' classes at any time that I wanted. I didn't, I wasn't really into surveilling them, but, but I often had conversations with teachers to ask them what they were doing in class, what they found was really working in that situation it was just as much about critical pedagogy as when i was with students i was there as 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 a mentor for the teachers as as a helper to the teachers and so i wanted to know what it was that was working for them what wasn't working for them i wanted them to want to be in class because i thought if they want to be in class then their students are going to want to be in class and so as an administrator i kind of wanted to know what was happening but not from the perspective of surveilling, but more from the perspective of how is it going and, and and how can we support you wanting to be there? So that would be, I guess, some examples from, from my past.
0: When we talked earlier about the discussion board, it's, it sort of cracked me up that neither you or I yet have expressed our disdain for them. <laughs> but, I mean, it, we've just conditioned our learners, if they've taken other online classes, make sure that your answer, Contains so many words, and that you go and have a substantive response to at least three other people. And then, and I, I will say that. I think I probably have a desire to measure things more than you do, and that probably has to do with, although I was going to say it probably has to do with my background in corporate training, but then you told me last time that you were on the show that you also share that. But I think I'm probably closer to that, but that, that even gives me a headache to think about how to quantify that and had to set up an LMS to do that. I've seen the shift that happens when we have people go public with their learning in some way, whether that's through Twitter, whether that's through another kind of social media, some of these more emerging ones. I've been trying out Snapchat. I'm a, I'm about a kindergartner level on Snapchat, but just it's fun to see these different places where we can experiment and have our students experiment with expressing themselves in some way in their learning and one of the things I've been thinking about I tried this last semester doing poster sessions in a consumer behavior class Mm -hmm. and I really resisted my own urge to have a rubric that was incredibly detailed on exactly what was expected and I think there were maybe only five areas of criteria and it was pretty loose. I I, mean, I thought like you're probably gonna be disappointed by the results that you see, but that's okay because it's the first time you're trying it. And this is what this is what you do. You experiment and and don't have too high of expectations. I I was completely blown away by what happened. There was one group that built, literally built a Barbie dream house. Because you think of a poster of just, you know, the three sides and everything. And that's what I would have thought. If I yeah. had been assigned to this with my own criteria, I would have you know printed out nice charts and maybe put some color there and and it would it would have looked like a poster session and they built a Barbie dream house and one of the things they looked at was consumer behavior of how the expressions of gender have affected women's body image and there was another one with race and ethnicity and how that that has been portrayed in the Barbie brand throughout the years and i forgot what their third one was but i thought If I had made too hard of requirements for that, and if there hadn't been this sense of we we were going to be going public with this, we were going to be combining with another event, a business ethics competition that I did too, so they knew other students were coming in, administrators were coming in, and people from the business community were going to be coming in as well. And it really created this sense of pride in their learning, this sense of excitement. And there was another group, talk about innovation. Their poster was analog, but they had a cutout and they had an iPad running in the background. So they they combined the digital with the analog. It was tremendous. Nice. and It was just a really fun thing. But we think about if I had had, you know, discussion boards, talk about what you learned in consumer behavior, all that. I mean, we would have missed out on just this incredible experience. And that was what I was thinking about in t- terms of when the learners wanted to be there. They were so excited and that I don't see that as often as I'd like to. And I wanted to be there. And in that instance, some of the administrators knew what was happening in my classes and it was great fun. I think there is a direct
1: correlation between the amount of restriction that we place on students and their lack of interest in what we're doing. Hmm. Because the more restrictions we place or the more expectations even, and sometimes those are the same thing, that we place on, on learning, the less students have the ability to, to explore it themselves, discover what the learning is for themselves, it has to all come from you then. And not only is that a huge burden for a teacher, the idea that, okay, I'm going to dispense all of the knowledge that you need to know for this course in the next 15 weeks, if you have a 15-week term. And instead, this what you're saying, like loosening up some of the rubrics, loosening up making some spaces where students can express themselves and reinterpret and, and actually grab hold of that one piece of that one PowerPoint slide that really attracted them, but that you didn't ask about on the quiz, right? <laughs> so it's, and, and then they can elaborate
0: on that. Sean, is what we've been talking about today critical pedagogy?
1: To a certain extent, yes, it is. I, I think that I think that what, we're, what we've been talking about a lot is sort of a, a practical application of critical pedagogy in the classroom in an, on, in an online form. But there's a there's a sort of ingredient in, in critical pedagogy that is really can't be separated out when we're talking about about its application, and that is that it it really derives before it was about teaching. It really derives out of a sort of social justice m- movement. When Paolo Freire first sort of introduced the idea of critical pedagogy, it was less about teaching students in a sort of student-centered way and and helping students take ownership of their own learning, and it was more about trying to teach people to read their world. Because if you could if you could help people read their world, then you're giving them the very first tool they need to free themselves from any sort of oppression or any sort of cycle they may be in. And in fact, when I'm working with teachers, through Digital Pedagogy Lab or or through you know one of the courses, uh, like the one you're going to be taking, or in any sort of situation, even on Twitter when I'm talking to teachers, my goal is always to guide them toward reading their world, to not take for granted the assumptions that are handed to us or that we take on ourselves about what digital learning looks like, about what learning looks like, about what teaching looks like, about the role of the teacher and the learner, about things like uh, data and surveillance and, and the LMS itself and education technology and the education technology industry and all that sort of thing, my goal is to try to help them read their world. And in this circumstance, their, their world is what's happening with education, specifically higher education. Because as soon as they can do that, as soon as they can, they can learn to read the LMS, for example, or to read the vendor room at a, at a giant conference, you know, as soon as they can read that, then they can recognize Then they can start to separate themselves out from it and, and start acting in ways that are more discerning and then acting in ways that are, that are more empowering. They're not just being advertised to, they're not just being sort of coaxed. They're not being intimidated by, by institutional powers. They're not being sort of pushed on by other expectations, expectations embedded in the design of an LMS, for example. Instead, they have the ability to read those things and respond to them the way that they want to respond to them. So when I talk about all this stuff, when I talk about learning that consists of PowerPoint slides or discussions that consist of rhetorical questions, I'm just giving examples. I'm giving examples of how I have learned to read the the world of of, of online learning or, or or digital learning or regular learning, like non-digital learning. I'm giving examples of what, what I've discovered in my own close reading of the world. I'm not saying this is true for everybody. I'm not. The truth is that some people could use PowerPoint slides to great effect. I have no idea. But they're not going to unless they're really thinking about PowerPoint slides and what they do and what they can't do and what they're, how they're watched and how they're responded to. And then you can create something really cool. But so often it's Teachers are taught the way that we the way, unfortunately, that we that we teach learners. And that is by rote. By this is what you do, this is just what you do. A learner who comes to me and says, Why do I have to take a midterm exam? That's a great learner. <laughs> that's, that's someone who's like, who's not just assuming that my rules are are correct. They're the rules, but they're not necessarily correct. And a teacher who, in my case, for example, a teacher who turns in a different syllabus than he's actually going to use in class, is someone who's doing something that is that's empowering, that's freeing. And I did that with my students in mind, trying to enable, uh, trying to to provide them a syllabus that would empower them. And so, it, it really is about that. It's and, and and a lot of people do try to reduce it to this idea of student-centered learning. You know, making the, the which can then be reduced into exercises that you can do in class, which then become a new variation on rubrics, basically. But in fact, it's so much more dynamic than that and and so much more unpredictable than that. Because what you're talking about is human empowerment, and you're talking about helping people read their world so that they can respond in the way that's right for them.
0: Is critical pedagogy a set of glasses that we can put on to help us view teaching or learning From a different paradigm or do you see it as a better analogy would be it's laser eye surgery and we see everything through that lens
1: i think it's for me it's laser eye surgery i don't see how i would be able to take it on and off there are certain trends in learning right now that are things like personalized learning or uh, project-based learning or things like that 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 are happening out there in the world and those those are techniques And I think that those are more lenses. Today I'm going to lecture. Tomorrow we're doing project-based learning. The next day we're gonna do personalized learning and then I'm gonna lecture again. For me, all of those things can fit under critical pedagogy if you are being critical about them, if you're being careful about why you're doing them and you're using them for what they're good for, just like I was just saying about PowerPoint slides. Like they can be used, they just need to be used well. But for me, I I think critical pedagogy is more like laser eye surgery for me. It's it's my legs. It's <laughs> it's how I walk in the world.
0: This is the point in the show where we each give some recommendations, and I've talked about in a few episodes starting a Slack channel for teaching in higher ed, and it's been going really well. And I wanted to just mention it again and officially recommend that people can send me an email, or the easiest way to send me an email is to go to teaching in higher ed dot com slash feedback that'll come right into my inbox and I would be more than happy to add you to that slack channel and it's been a neat community people will pose questions it's a safe place to be able to admit not knowing something or struggling with something and I've been enjoying it grow organically and just how resourceful the people are who are providing answers I see it as very much similar to what I get out of Twitter which is tremendous although it does have a little bit more of a closer, I guess, closed community in the sense of that there's been people who have expressed concerns over other people from their institutions seeing what they might write in a public space like Twitter. And if that resonates with any of you at all, I just encourage you to check out the Slack channel. And the thing that's nice about Slack is that it does allow you to really hone in your notifications you can easily turn on do not disturb it's really smart if you see something on your cell phone that's a notification it's not going to also show you that same notification on your computer you have at 16 times across all your devices it's just really smart and i think they're doing some smart things there in the slack channel and i've been truly enjoying the slack channel i think i probably feel closer to the community there on the Slack channel than I have in any other way, just because of, I guess, the, the nature of that tool. So I'd, I'd suggest anyone who wants to join us, it's, it's been fun and I think it would be valuable to you. And Sean, what do you have to recommend for us today?
1: Well, I've got a couple of books, but I actually want to just compliment you on that use of Slack because Slack was designed, I think, as a corporate team tool and and meant for corporations or institutions to use to to keep conversations collected, essentially. And the idea of sort of creating a public, if you will, kind of public Slack is very, very cool. I've not actually heard of anyone doing it, and I think that's that's super neat um, because it is that closed community, so you do have a different sense of, of intimacy. And and a lot less risk because you have people there who are kind of similar thinkers where on Twitter, you have no idea who's going to read what you just what you just did. And there are benefits to both. But I think that I really think this is very cool. And I will definitely be wanting to join your Slack channel In terms of recommendations. I've got a couple of, of books. I've just started reading the Pedagogy of Indignation, um, which is actually Paulo for final book. And it's actually out of print, which I find interesting. For a long time, I thought that his final book was Pedagogy of Hope, which felt like such a lovely arc that he would go from Pedagogy of the Oppressed to Pedagogy of Hope. And I was like, oh, that's so great. At the end, he found hope. That's so nice. But actually, at the very end, he was Pedagogy of Indignation. And I think that's really fascinating that that's, that's actually where he was at toward the end. Um, and it's a great book, incredibly accessible and uh, a very, very inspiring read. The other one that I would recommend is The Children's Machine, and that's by Seymour Papert, P-A-P-E-R-T. And I was turned on to Children's Machine by, by maybe the only educational voice out there that I'm a fanboy for, and that's Audrey Waters. <laughs> Papert's work is amazing. He was doing some of the very original thinking about what it meant to bring computers into a classroom, and some of his thoughts and ideas are incredibly relevant today, and I think, unfortunately, highly ignored by most people who are bringing computers into classrooms. It'd be great if education technology and Silicon Valley would listen to some of ideas. And then the last thing I would recommend is actually completely not related to education, and that is a band called Lights. <laughs> But um, Jesse Stommel just turned me on to Lights, L-I-G-H-T-S, um, specifically a song called Up We Go, because it's quite good. Yeah, so those would be my my recommendations.
0: Sean, thank you so much for joining me once again on Teaching in Higher Ed. And I cannot express fully how much I am looking forward to learning even more from you, both in the formal and informal spaces. And I just thank you for how you've challenged me in my own teaching and just what an inspiration you are. Thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me back. It's been great.
0: It's always so great to talk to Sean Michael Morris, and I just appreciate him investing his time once again on teaching in higher ed, this time on episode 103. If you'd like to access the show notes, those will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 103. But if you don't want to have to remember to go and do that, I suggest that you subscribe to the weekly update. It's just a single email that comes into your email box once a week, and you'll get automatically sent the show notes as well as an article about either teaching or productivity on most weeks. That article is included there. And you can do that at teaching in higher slash subscribe And if you'd like to stay connected maybe in a more intimate way with the Teaching in Higher Ed community, we have started a Slack channel. You can just go to teaching in highered.com slash feedback, which is the fastest way to send me an email and let me know what email address you use on Slack. And I'd be happy to add you to the channel. I've just been so excited to see the way that community is really coming together. And it's been fun to see all the advice that gets shared and the vulnerability with which people ask questions. It's just been great fun. So I'd suggest that you connect in that way. It's really been a rich set of conversations that have been happening up there. Thanks so much for listening and I'll look forward to seeing you next time.